Hello, everyone. My name is Mary Smith. I am your podcast host of An Educator's Legacy and the owner of Educational Leadership Consultants. And y'all, today I've asked my friend Mike Anderson to be uh, a guest on my podcast. And I met Mike several years ago when we were presenting at the same um, uh, conferences. We, you know, we, we met a couple of years in a row. Mike is the most down-to-earth, um, humble, um, just all-around great guy on the planet. And I really liked him the first time I met him just because he's so real. You know, he's just so genuine. And then I asked him to be on my podcast just because I thought, you know, I really like Mike. Let's, let's have him on the podcast. And then I started doing some research into what he's doing. And y'all, huh, I was floored. Okay, so I had no idea I, that I consider my friend a celebrity. He was a celebrity. Um, let me tell you about Mike. Mike Anderson's mission is to help make teaching and learning more self-directed and joyful for both children and teachers. I knew that about him. He's been an educator for more than 25 years, a public school teacher for 15 years. He's also taught preschool, coached school swim teams, taught university graduate level classes. Now he's a consultant and he provides professional learning for teachers throughout the United States and internationally. In 2004, Mike was awarded a National Millican Educator Award. And in 2005, he was a finalist for the New Hampshire Teacher of the Year. In 2020, y'all, this year, he was awarded the Outstanding Educator Educational, let me say that right. He was awarded the Outstanding Educational Leader Award by NHASCD, which is the New Hampshire Association of Supervision and Curriculum Development. Am I right there, Mike? You got it. Okay. For his work as a consultant, he's the author of, y'all, a lot of books. I, I don't know how many, like 10, eight or 10, somewhere around in there. And he's, I mean, all of them are about great teaching, great learning. His, some of his more popular titles include Learning to Choose, Choosing to Learn, the first six weeks of school, the research ready classroom. And his latest book is called what we say and how we say it matter. And it hit bestseller status only five minutes, five minutes, five months after its release. Now, when Mike's not working, he is a gardener and he hangs out with his family and he runs the running thing still blows my mind, but he likes to run. So he's always looking around for places that he can run. But what really blew my mind, y'all, is when I went to his website and I saw that he not only has a bunch of books that he's written, but he's also a consultant. He has online PD classes available for you. He writes a blog and there's resources that he's got out the wazoo that all you have to do is type in a word and it sends you these resources. And it, it's amazing to me. It is amazing. Mike, I had no idea that you were a celebrity. <laughs> this is a lot of pressure, Mary. Now I'm getting really nervous about doing this interview. This is a lot to live up to. Yeah, well, I, honestly, y'all, I'm, I'm really, really impressed with what it is. Now, I will say his latest book, What We Say and How We Say It Matter, is a book that's all about language and how we speak to kids. So, Mike, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. And thank you so much, Mary, for inviting me to join you for a conversation. I'm just uh, thrilled to be here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this last book, um, it's all about the language that we use. And it's, it's based on a couple of really, I think, basic key ideas. One is that I think as educators, we all have good intentions for kids. Um, we want good things for them. So that's sort of point A. Point B is that when it comes to how we talk, 
we naturally fall into habits and patterns. You know, don't you find that when you're talking to kids, you say things in a kind of predictable way. If you're transitioning them, you have your stock phrases you go to. If kids ask you a certain kind of question, you answer in a certain kind of way. And I think this is natural. We have to be in habits with the way we talk because if you tried to pre-think everything you said before you'd say it, you'd go insane, especially with how much we're all doing all at once as teachers. So that's kind of point B is we have to be in habits. And then point C is that we all end up, myself included, absolutely, we all end up in at least some habits that don't match our best intentions for kids. And I can give you just a couple examples. So one that I really worked hard on as a teacher, worked hard to shift, was I wanted my students to be independent. I wanted them to think for themselves. I didn't want them to be overly reliant on me for whether or not they were doing a good job with things or whether or not their work was good. I wanted them to be able to look at their work and say, hey, I'm proud of that. I did really well. Or, oh, this is something I think I could work on. So that was my good intention. But my language habit of praising them using phrases like, I like the way and I love the way, you know, I love the way you added details to the story. I really like the way you're walking so quietly in the hallway. Oh, I so appreciate how hard you're working right now. Thank you for remembering a push in your chair. <laughs> I used all of these language habits that actually were training the kids to care about what I thought about stuff. So even as I wanted them to be independent, that language habit of praising them with I like the way you and I love the way you was running totally counter to my goal. So that's just one example of a language habit that, where there's a mismatch between our good goals and our, and our language. And then another really common one that I hear all the time is, I think as educators, we all want kids to feel ownership of their work. We want them to feel like the work is theirs. We don't want them just doing it because we said to them, you know, because we said so. But then we'll sometimes say things like, um, hey, everybody, I'm looking back in my record book and a couple of you still owe me an assignment from last week. So if we say you owe me an assignment, it's pretty clear that the ownership rests with the teacher and not the kid. Or he might say, uh... you know, or he might say, OK, everyone in this next activity, here are the three things you're going to do for me. And so we say, here are the things you're going to do for me. Where's the ownership sit? Ownership sits with the teacher. So even as we want kids to be intrinsically motivated and invested in their work, we may have language habits that indicate that it's really their job to do what we say, which is not exactly going to instill a lot of intrinsic motivation in them. So those are just a couple of right. examples of kind of common mismatches between our best intentions and the language we use. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, let me tell you another, uh, another one. And I think this may fall into what you're talking about. Because I know that for my, like my first, I don't know, I was in the classroom for 18 years and my first 10, at least I got marked off every year for sarcasm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I was intentionally being sarcastic because I wasn't, but it's my personality. I mean, I just have kind of a sarcastic personality and I allow it to run free because I think it's funny. And honestly, I mean, I got counted off for it every year. That was the only thing I consistently got counted off for every single year. So was that's really interesting, Mary, because I think that, um, I mean, having talked with you several times and hung out and, you know, gone out to dinner with you, I, I see you as somebody who uses irony a lot. But, but I think sometimes <laughs> we confuse, and I think this is a really common thing. I think that we overgeneralize that term sarcasm. And so true sarcasm is actually intended to hurt people's feelings. So a truly sarcastic uh, comment in the classroom might be if a kid leaves a mess on a table and we walk over and say, oh, what do I look like you're made? You know, that's intended oh, yeah. to kind of cut the, cut the kid down to size and make them feel bad. 
we absolutely we should not be using sarcasm you know if it's a cold rainy day out and you look out the window and say oh, what a beautiful day it is out there that's actually irony that's saying one thing and meaning another but you're not trying to hurt yeah. anybody and and still i think irony if we overuse it it's confusing for kids and, it, and i'm not sure we want an ironic tone in the classroom all the time either um no we don't yeah but I, but i wouldn't be surprised if i think we all slip into sarcasm every now and then and i and I work so hard not to, and it still comes out occasionally. Um, but, but I would be surprised if you were truly using a lot of sarcasm all the time with your kids, just because I feel like I know you a little bit. And, would, and my guess is you're right. probably more ironic than sarcastic. But for teachers out there wondering, and I think you're right. should we be sarcastic? The answer is no, we should never use true sarcasm. It actually, <laughs> I, I researched this in the book. The, the word sarcasm comes from a Greek word, which means to tear flesh like a dog. Really? Uh -huh. Wow. Yeah. And you're right, Mike. I, I, because honestly, I didn't, I've never made that distinction. Yeah. It's, I think we overgeneralize the term. Um, and it, and it doesn't right. mean that there's not sarcasm out there because there is. And that's one of the, I yeah. try in this language book, I try to be so invitational with my own language as an author, you know, to say things like, here's some things you might consider. Here's a language habit to, to, you know, think about a little bit. I really try and, um, you know, I don't want teachers to feel overly judged when they're reading the book, but sarcasm is one I'll fall on the sword for. Sar sarcasm is one of the few things where I just point blank say, yeah, we should never be truly sarcastic because it, yeah. it totally works against our goals of having a positive classroom community and having trusting positive relationships with kids. You're right, because if sarcasm means to tear flesh, mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. that's, that's, there's no place for it in a classroom yep. at all. That's interesting, though. I'm glad you pointed that out, because that makes me, do, that does make me feel a little oh, better. Oh, like, good. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, I grew up, I grew uh -huh. up in the 80s. I watched MASH and Cheers. Those are my favorite TV shows growing up. And, um, and so I grew up with these language habits around cutting people down and using true sarcasm and joking and teasing in ways that were both playful, but sometimes went over the edge. And I absolutely brought that into my classroom early on in my teaching career. And I actually start off the book by telling the story about this fourth grader who at the end of my first year teaching, I had had all the kids fill out a report card for me at the end of the year so that I could get a sense of, you know, how I'd done as a teacher. I figured who better to give me feedback about my first year of teaching than the nine-year-olds who just spent nine months hanging out with me. Right. And Jenna um, wrote in the comments section on the report card that sometimes I had hurt her feelings. And I was crushed. I thought, what? Jenna? But we've got such a good rapport. We're always joking and teasing back and forth. And so I, um, so you can see where I'm going with this. So I went over to her and I got down on one knee and talked with her. And I said, Jenna, thank you so much for giving me this feedback. And I'm so sorry. I never meant to hurt your feelings. Can you help me understand, like, what did I do that hurt your feelings? And she kind of rolled her eyes and smiled. She said, I know you didn't mean to, Mr. A. It's just that I couldn't always tell when you were joking and when you were serious. Mm. And I thought, right, because you're in fourth grade. <laughs> yeah. So even that yeah. kind of language, even if it's not truly sarcastic, that sort of jokey, teasing, playful banter, even that we have to use with caution, I think, because it doesn't always yeah. come off as we mean it to. Well, and it has to do with, our, with the motivation behind the comments. Yes. Right. What are we using right. it for? Yep. Yes. And, and in, you're working on another book right now. I am. 
where you're talking about shifting motivation. I am. Is that correct? I am. That was quite a segue you just pulled off there, Mary. That was pretty good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it was good. Yeah. So this next book, I'm actually, um, I am up to my ears right now in drafting. The draft is due to my editor at the end of September. Um, This next book is all about how to shift systems of extrinsic motivation in schools toward ones that rely on and foster um, intrinsic motivation. So how do we move away from using clip charts and gem jars and grades to motivate behavior and teacher-centric praise, like I like the way you and I love the way you, you know, all these ways to motivate kids. I'm actually making the case that we should stop trying to motivate kids in school. And instead we should try and foster and rekindle their intrinsic motivation. Um, so that's the next project and I'm really, really excited about it. Although a little overwhelmed right now too, because the, you know, but once you get to that okay, point in the book, you, you get a us... little swamped. Right? Yeah. And, and it's, it's stressful trying to get a book out. I can tell you that because I, you know, I've got a couple out myself. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's stressful getting it out. It sure is. And then you go and write something and then you go, wait, did I really mean to say that? Is that, is that going to be interpreted the way I meant it to be interpreted? Mm-hmm. And you, you constantly second guess yourself. No doubt. No doubt. But I do want to ask a question, though, because you're writing this book about getting away from um, those extrinsic motivators, yep. you know, all the stuff that teachers honestly hate trying to figure out how to do and what can I do to keep them motivated. And, OK, I used to a marble jar this week and I'm going to use stickers next week right. and then next week I'm going to use stamps. Can you give them some kind of nugget, just one strategy that would that they could maybe try in that shift? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's one nugget. I think it's one really important idea. And I think the important idea is that if it's teacher's job to motivate kids, then the energy is coming from the wrong place. Okay, say that again, because you kind of cut out a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. So if, if if teachers are the ones doing the motivating, then I think the energy for learning is coming from the wrong place. Okay. We want the energy to be coming from the kids. And so... So here's, here's the kind of core basic, of the basic idea of the book. At the beginning of the book, I'm helping teachers understand all the damage that those sit- sticker systems and marbles in a jar, those actually do a lot of damage in the long run because um, they send all kinds of bad messages. There's tons and tons of research I've been, I've been digging into that show that they do a lot of damage. But then the replacement is, because that's the important thing. So what do we do instead? Mm-hmm. Instead, we tap into one or more of six intrinsic motivators. And these are motivators that we are all born with. They are hardwired in. So you ready for these? Yep. Okay. One is a sense of autonomy. We are really motivated when we have a sense of agency and power and control over the work that we're doing. Another is a sense of belonging. We're really motivated when we feel like we're part of a learning community and when we have connections with other people we're working with. A third one is competence. It feels really, really good when we see ourselves growing and learning and gaining mastery, either of skills or over content. Another is purpose. We need to know why we're doing what we're doing. And when we know there's a real purpose, and the purpose needs to make sense for kids, by the way, like telling kids your sixth grade teacher expects you to know your math facts, that's a grown-up reason for learning your math facts, um, as opposed to a kid one, which is, hey, we're going to be playing some really fun games, 
and they're going to help us practice math facts. And we're going to create a bulletin board to show people what we're learning. Like that can give kids more of a sense of purpose. Um, mm -hmm. The fifth one is curiosity. We can tap into those things that we're like, we're all curious about certain things. We all have interests, sometimes that we can't even explain. Like, why have I always been fascinated with frogs and toads and salamanders? I have no idea. But even now as a gardener, if I come across a toad, I'll pick it up and look at it for a while and, and you know, and then put it back in the garden. So we can tap right. into people's natural interests. And then the sixth one is fun. So when learning is playful, when it's energetic, when it's joyful, we can be really motivated to do great work. So what I'm, what I'm, the sort of case I'm making in the book is that when we can tap into those things and make those a part of the academic work, then we don't have to use stickers and marbles in a jar and the promise of good grades to get kids motivated to do it. Those are the things we use when we think the work doesn't have inherent value. Like we use stickers, oh. you know, we say, I'll give you a sticker if you'll do this because we're thinking, why else would you do it? It's not good. Like it's boring or it's not fun or you won't, you won't like it. So then we have to bribe them to get them to do it. But if the work itself has actual value and has real intrinsic motivation built in, um, then we get kids dying to do the work. They can't wait because it's so much fun and it's so engaging. All right, Mike, you offered us six intrinsic motivators, but what does that look like for a teacher in a classroom? Oh, yeah. So there's so many different strategies we can use to support these intrinsic motivators. There's one in particular that comes to mind, and that is giving students choice. And it doesn't have to be really complicated choice. It can be. Independent research projects can be a fantastic way to foster a lot of these motivators. But even giving kids a few choices about how they learn, let's say, um, long division or long multiplication, if that's something we're working on in fourth or fifth grade. Um, we could give them an option of one of a couple of different worksheets they could try and they could pick and choose the problems that feel like they're at the just right challenge level for them. So now they've got a sense of autonomy because they've had choice. They're getting a chance to practice competence because they're putting themselves in that zone of proximal development in that just right challenge zone. Um, we might give another option where they could work either on their own or with a friend. And so that means that now they've got an opportunity to, to tap into belonging if they'd like. We could have a game or two that might connect with, um, that could connect with long division or long multiplication. So now we're adding in a little bit of fun. We could give them the chance to create a bulletin board to show how to do long division or long multiplication, which would give a sense of purpose. So by giving a few choices, we might say, okay, you can either do this worksheet and pick and choose the problems that feel just right. You can do um, a couple of problems with a partner you can play this game that helps you practice the skill, or you can be part of a team that's putting together a bulletin board to teach others about how to do multiplication and division. Choose one of those that feels like a just right fit for you. Well, now we've tapped into autonomy, competence, belonging, fun, purpose, five of the six using a really, really simple choice. And so choice is one of the ways that we can tap into intrinsic motivation um, in lots and lots of different ways. That's so cool. And you know what I was hearing as you were talking about that mm. is that um, you're also tapping into personality styles. <laughs> you know, yep. you're giving those kids who need to to talk the um, ability to partner with someone so they can get that relationship part piece of it that they crave so much. And for kids who need to do some thinking on their own, they've got an option there, too. Right. So I, I think here's just such a simple choice that we could give. Let's say it's a high school class and we're about to have a discussion-based activity and we're going to continue the discussion that we had yesterday. 
So here's a simple choice we might give to kids at the beginning of class. We say, okay, everybody, we're gonna continue the discussion we had yesterday. You've got one of two options about how to prepare for the discussion. You could either look back through your notes and look back through the text that we were exploring yesterday. You'll have about five minutes to do that. Or you could have a five minute partner chat with somebody else. And then you can talk together about what you remember about yesterday's class to get ready for today's class. Which of those two options do you think would best help you prepare for today's discussion? Oh, that's good. Even that simple choice of what to do in five minutes to get ready for class. Right. Offers extroverts the chance to talk with somebody else and process out loud and introverts the chance to be in their own head for a little bit and do some thinking on their own. Um, and, I, and I think that's a really powerful choice, even though it's a really simple one. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know what I like about that, about your um, six things here, your autonomy, belonging, confidence, purpose, curiosity, and fun, mm -hmm. is that you're teaching them lifelong skills. That's right. So we have inherited a school system that was developed in the industrial age to churn out factory workers. But we're not factory workers anymore. That's right. We have a totally new economy. And people are in business. People are not looking to hire people who are really good at being managed and motivated by other people. We don't, right. we don't want good little compliant, obedient worker bees. Businesses are looking to hire people who have self-direction, who have self-management skills, who are creative thinkers, who are self-motivated. Those are the kinds- Problem solvers. Yeah, so those are the kinds of experiences, learning experiences we need to be creating for kids in school. Otherwise, we're gonna be preparing kids for an economy that doesn't even exist anymore. Right. Yeah, it's more like a third world com economy than it is a first world economy. Well, you know, a lot of the a lot of the sort of rote jobs where it was just about showing up at nine and punching in and doing what you were told all day and punching out at five. Those are the jobs that are either being outsourced because right. there are other countries where people will do those, that kind of work for less money or they're being automated. Yeah. And, you know, if you can write a, com a computer code. To, to do the task, then we're going we're gonna to automate the work. And so the work that's left, I mean, people are engaging in the gig economy where they're maybe holding three or four part-time jobs and kind of holding all those things together and being self-directed, or they're right. engaged in highly creative, interesting work that really requires um, a different kind of skill set than just sort of sitting there and doing what you're told by your boss, which is unfortunately the way school still feels in some places for many kids. You know, I, I, I'm kind of hesitant to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Okay. My, my boy, when he was in um, ninth or 10th grade, maybe eighth, I can't remember. Anyway, somewhere around that middle school, high, early high school age, he decided school was not that important because he started bringing home like C's, D's, and F's on his report card. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him, I said, what's up? And he said, well, mom, school's boring and stupid. I said, okay, well, here's the thing. If you think that school is boring and stupid and, you know, you're not going to bother to put forth any effort and you're not going to bother to learn to think, then I, that's fine. But I'm going to make you the best non-thinker out there. You're going to get so good at following directions mm -hmm. because no one's going to pay you to think. Mm -hmm. You're going to be paid to follow directions. <laughs> and so I'm going to give you, we're going to start practicing now for you following directions. And he goes, that's fine, because, you know, school's dumb. I said, that's fine. That's fine. So here's what I want you to do first. And I gave him a pair of scissors. And I said, I want you to go trim all around the front yard. You're going to, and he goes, Mom, I'll use the weed ear. No, 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 no. 
You're not paid to think. You're paid to do what you're told. And I'm telling you, <laughs> you need to go trim all around the driveway, the sidewalks, the curb, all of it with this pair of scissors. I want you to trim the, trim the grass. That's stupid, Mom. I said, I don't care. You're done. You're being paid to follow directions. So we had him do trivial chores like that. You know, my, my husband or my dad, I can't remember one of them, told him he had to pick up the dog turds with chopsticks. Oh, jeez. Yeah. It was just <laughs> dumb. I, I had him clean the toilet or the bathroom floor with a toothbrush. Yeah. Um, just because I said, you're going to be paid to follow my directions. You're not going to be paid to think. And if you don't think school's important, school teaches you to think. If you don't think it's important, that's fine. But you're going to be the best following directions kid ever that's ever been out there. That lasted about six weeks before his grades were back up to A's and B's. <laughs> because he didn't want to do it, you know. So it reminds me of when we had our chimney replaced a couple of years ago. My kids were both teenagers. And they were watching these two guys who had been hired um, and were probably getting paid about eight or ten bucks an hour under the table. They were hired to haul brick. And yeah. that was what they were supposed to do was get the brick from the truck and haul it up the ladders and buckets and put it out where the mason could do the work. And I remember my son looking up at that and sort of commenting on how boring that looked and how hard it was. And, uh, and my wife and I would just sort of smile and say, stay in school, kids, stay in school. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you don't stay that is in, so true. because, you know, I mean, that's that's one of the scary things is that. Um, for kids who do drop out, for kids who don't don't learn to love learning, um, they right. may be destined to a world of work that really is about hauling brick or digging ditches. And um, and it's not that that can't be valuable work. I mean, we we need you know we need people to be able to do that work. But I'm hoping that we are also helping kids gain the skills so that they've got lots of choices and options. Right. And. So both of my kids suffered from grades in different ways in high school. So my son's a freshman in college right now, and my daughter's a senior in high school. My daughter suffered from grades because she really cared about them. Mm. And she would um, chase good grades, in my mind, uh, too far. You know, she would stay up way too late studying for a test. She would get herself so worked up if she didn't get the grades she wanted on a lab. And I remember we, were, we would say to her, Carly, it's okay to not get all of your work done sometimes. It's okay to miss a homework assignment. It's okay to get a bad grade on a test. Like, don't be so good at playing the school game. Right. Our son, on the other hand, um, was a little bit more like yours in, in that he was just kind of saying, you know, this is stupid. I don't care about it. This is dumb. This is boring. If he had a class that he found interesting, he would pour his heart and soul into it. But those were few and far between, unfortunately. And so we would say to him things like, Ethan, play the school game just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit of playing the school game will give you so many more choices later in life. Right? <laughs> um, That's interesting. But you know what? I mean, a lot of the times, I, I think he was right. He, you know, he, the learning wasn't interesting. There wasn't anything of inherent value there. And so it was boring. And, um, and so I kind of felt his pain as he was disconnecting from school. In fact, at one point, he was not doing his homework in physics like he had work to do in physics but he was skipping it and instead he was in his makerspace in the basement building an air cannon that could fire a nerf dart over our house using a bicycle pump pvc tubing and an irrigation shutoff valve so 
he was doing physics <laughs> yeah. while not studying for a physics test because the work he was getting in physics felt rote and boring. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the good news is, is those students who typically have a little bit of struggle, but they're doing things like physics in their basement as opposed to, you know, just playing a video game or running around with the wrong crowd or whatever. Yeah. Those, um, those kids typically grow up and do, do fairly decent for themselves, you know? It reminds me a little bit of um, something that Mark Twain said. I can't remember if he said this in Tom Sawyer or in Huck Finn, but he said it of, of Tom Sawyer. He said, um, he'll be president yet if he can avoid a hanging. There you go. <laughs> and that's kind of like, you know, some of those kids who don't fit the sort of, the sort of typical rote model student in school, which is about being a good little worker bee and being compliant. You know, if those kids can just survive the school experience and not, not come out too damaged, then they've got a shot of doing really cool things because they've got motivation that's not going to be squashed. Right. Um, the kids who suffer sometimes even more in school are the ones who, who just either lose their fire altogether or they become really good at doing what other people say. And then they get out of school and all of a sudden that's not a valued skill. I, I got an example of that. A buddy of mine works at a tech company outside of Boston and he's at the manager level. And he was voicing his frustration to me recently when we were on a run about somebody who he works with, who he manages, who keeps coming up to him in the middle of projects saying, Michael, do you like this? Michael, is it good enough? Oh, Michael, yeah. is this okay? Is this what you're looking for? And it totally reminded me of my fourth graders right. who used to come up to me with that same question. And he looked at me and said, Mike, if I already knew how the project was gonna turn out in the end, I wouldn't have needed to hire her for the project. Like I'm hiring her because I need her to figure it out and I don't have an end in mind. Right. And so he was frustrated with somebody who was actually looking to be compliant when compliance was not what was needed for that task. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a difference too. You know, I mean, because I know, I know a lot of people who suffer from that frustration. Um, when I owned my staffing agency and I was staffing for oil and gas companies, I cannot tell you how many jobs I got strictly because they were able to say to me, okay, I don't want somebody that needs constant affirmations. I don't mm -hmm. want somebody who, who can't work independently and who's constantly in my office saying, am I on the right track here? Am I headed in the right direction? Are you yeah. happy with what I'm doing? They don't want that, you know? Right. And so I got jobs based on my ability to find those people who were more, uh, who didn't require the constant affirmations, you know, because they couldn't do that it. without it being a, um, what's it called? Discrimination issue, you know, or you, mm -hmm. you're discriminating against them because of whatever. Yep. So anyway, okay. So, all right. So Mike, you know, we've talked a lot about the motivation and how we say things and, um, you know, different little pieces about your work, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I've got to say, I think teachers and educators in general are going to be super pumped about your next book. Does it have a title yet? Oh, I can't stand titles. Ah, uh, okay. It's one of the things I most struggle with as a writer. Right now I'm toying with the idea of create a culture of self-motivation in your school. But I, I worry that that's a little bit like, uh, people are going to look at that and say, oh, gosh, I've got so much more practical stuff to do right now. I can't even like I 
yeah, I don't know. No, I don't have a working title, but it's about moving from um, from motivating kids to instilling self-motivation in kids. Okay. Uh, and when is it know. due out? Do you know? Well, I don't think we have a, a, a published date yet. I'm supposed to get the draft in by the end of September. So my guess is we're probably looking at about this time of next year is when it'll actually be out. Okay. And folks, what I'll do is, because I know a lot of y'all are going to be excited about that. I will make sure that I retweet everything that Mike puts out that's along those lines so that y'all can have access to what it is he's talking about in this particular project. So, um, you know, I'm sure it'll start probably mid-year next year, and then we will go from there. But I'll make sure that, that I get y'all that information out for everybody who wants to hear it, and I'll update the website with it. Okay, so Mike, let me ask you another question. Sure. And this is one of the questions that I always start with, and we're way deep into this now, so, you know. Mm. Um, but why did you choose to become an educator? So I suppose what I should answer is something about purpose and mission, and I want to make the world a better place. I think I grew into that. But honestly, the reason that I first became an educator is because I really liked working with kids. Like, it's just that simple. I started teaching swimming lessons as a high school kid at an after-school YMCA swim program in the town where I grew up in Auburn, Maine. And I was, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old. And I remember thinking, this is really fun. Like, <laughs> I like working with kids. Yeah. So, um, so that was really what brought it on. And so I went off to college knowing I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Um, and up to that point, by the way, before I started teaching swimming lessons, there was no way I was going to be a teacher because my mother was a third grade teacher. My father was a college professor, you know, so there's no way I'm going to do what my parents do. And then all of a sudden I started teaching swimming lessons and fell in love with working with kids. So that's that was really so what, funny. That's what started it. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, you try and get away from something that you think you don't want to do <laughs> and you, that's exactly where you end up, you know, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. know because when I was in school, I was one of those students, a lot like my son. I skipped a lot of classes. I got um, ends in using conduct because I talked too much. I made good grades, but mm. I, I talked too much. I was out of control. I set the school on fire a couple of times, you know, just oh that kind of stuff. I was just mm -hmm. not a great student, but I was bored out of my mind, and I didn't understand. To me, school was a social event. It wasn't really any, any other purpose to it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really go to class a lot, but by the time I went back to my high school reunions, I had a couple of high school reunions, like my 20 year, I think is when teacher or my friends started asking me, they, they would, they saw me and they went, wait, you're still alive. And I went, uh, yeah, <laughs> why? They said, we figured you'd be dead by now. Oh, okay. So that honestly, that kind of offended me. It's like, why would you think I'd be dead? You know, it's like, mm -hmm. what did I do? And then they asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a teacher. And they said, what? You're a teacher? <laughs> uh, yeah. Why is that so hard to believe? And they said, because you gave hell to every teacher there was. <laughs> went, yeah. Oh, and see, I didn't realize that I was perceived as that out of control because I didn't yep. perceive myself. Is that out of control? To me, it was just, eh, you know, I'm not going to go to school today, you know. But it was completely you know, Mary, different. I think we need more teachers in the profession who weren't good, compliant little worker bees in school. Well, that because, yeah, well, and it wasn't. It, I played the game 
but only just enough to sort of get by and keep my parents off my back. Yeah. But I didn't love school growing up. I did as an elementary school kid. I think most people love school in elementary school. But middle school and high school were not a whole lot of fun. And so what that does, I think, for those of us who didn't fit the sort of typical ideal student mold, it gives us more empathy for kids who are struggling to connect with school. It um, gives us a broader perspective on how it feels to be in school if you're not just sort of good at following the rules and doing the school game thing. And I, I think we need more people in leadership roles in education who didn't fit that sort of classic mold as kids. Um, otherwise, we're just going to keep setting up the same system that we enjoyed as kids and we're never going to actually change. Right. Right. I agree with you on that one. I think you're right. Okay. So, Mike, I am super excited about your new book that's coming out. I appreciate you joining me. Folks, if you want to get in touch with Mike, Mike. Yes. You're good with them reaching you via email, Twitter, or your website, correct? Any of those would work, especially if people are looking to reach out with some, you know, a deeper question. Um, probably email is the best way to go. If or people if they want, want just... you to come and speak at their school or do a training. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Email's whether it's an online virtual training or whether it's an on-site training, I do all that stuff. And, um, Get, looking on my website and getting a sense of some of the things that I do would be a good starting point. And then yeah. an email is probably the best way to get in touch with me. Okay. So here's this website, folks. It's called leadinggreatlearning.com. It's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-G-R-E-A-T learning, L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G.com. And folks, that's exactly the way it's spelled. So there's two G's there in leading great. And it's, if you want to get in touch with them via email, if you're looking for a consultant, if you're looking for a coach, if you're looking for training, if you're looking for a speaker, do it through email. It's Mike, M-I-K-E, at leadinggreatlearning.com. Visit his website at www.leadinggreatlearning.com. He's got tabs on there that about his books, his consulting, online PD opportunities, resources, a blog, all kinds of things there. It is a plethora of information. So visit www.leadinggreatlearning.com or you can connect with him on Twitter. And his Twitter handle is at Balanced Teacher, B-A-L-A-N-C-E-D, Teacher, T-E-A-C-H-E-R. So you can connect with Mike Anderson through Mike at leadinggreatlearning.com, through his website at www.leadinggreatlearning.com or Twitter at balanced teacher. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to that book that you're writing right now. Oh, thank you so much, Mary. And I really appreciate the chance to share some of these ideas with your listeners. And I'd love to hear some of their feedback. So um, make sure to pass along any feedback that comes your way. I will and, do um, that. And thank, yeah. And thank you so much for giving me the chance to come on and join you. This has been really fun. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you, Mary. All right, folks, you heard it here. We will talk to you next time. Oh, thank you.